matter where I go, people secretly and sometimes openly want to know how I can afford to travel year round. While I've spent over a decade traveling, I'm not even at the halfway point of seeing all 195 countries. However, there are quite a bit of people who have visited every country in the world. I plan to talk to all of them, asking them the sacrifices they've made to see every country, what were their favorites and least favorites, their craziest experiences, tips on how we can travel more, and yes, how they can afford to travel nonstop. I'm Kevin Liu, the host of the Pick My Adventure show, and I'm glad you're ready to hear what it takes to be one of the world's most traveled. I want to welcome Stefan Krasowski to the show today. Stefan is the founder of a Facebook group I'm a part of, Every Passport Stamp. Uh, he has traveled to every country in the world, and he did it all before he turned 40 years old. So, Stefan, thank you for joining us today. And thank you, and excited to be part of this new new podcast and adventure you're launching. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I've learned so much from your Facebook group. But uh, tell me a little bit about how you made all to see all 193 or 195. I know there's some debate on how many countries are out there in the world, but um, how did you make this happen? And, and why did you do this all before the age of 40? There's usually a collecting story or a collecting addiction to, to everybody who, who goes about this. They have to complete the set. So when I was a little kid and I'd have a birthday party, my, my mother would just dread that I would end up uh, receiving a gift for something that that I never had because I would immediately go to the catalog and and say I <laughs> start studying it. Do I want to have them all? And so uh, uh, I grew up. My parents workaholics. Not not much travel other than visiting family in in New York. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the U.S. Uh, studied Chinese in high school, and and we had a junior year trip, and that was just so exciting and different and interesting to me. It it got me started on travel and. Uh, a few years later, I was studying abroad in Hong Kong and got a map of China and started taking overnight trains, overnight buses. I arranged my classes to be Monday to Wednesday and spent the rest of the time going around China, filling in the dots and uh, finished college, got got a job for internships and jobs, a little more money, started traveling around Asia. Finally, when I was looking at East Timor as the one that I hadn't been to in Asia, I said, I'm on my way. And each, each, each step of the way, I thought, oh, I'm not going to go for, for everything. And then it, it just kept snowballing and being so much fun and exciting for me to uh, keep doing it. And there's a lot of sacrifices to doing it, relationships, time, cost. I mean, it's a big commitment, however you do it. So it's it's one that a lot of us don't start fully formed in the goal, but along the way, it's it becomes a lifestyle and, and something that we treasure. So <clears throat> at what point did you start to be like, you know what, I'm going to go see every single country in the world. And when did you get come to that realization that that's something that you wanted to accomplish? Yeah, that was about five years after college. And uh, as I said, as as I started traveling around Asia, I was like, well, what, what's this place? And looking at the map and, and East Timor is one that has hardly any tourism, but is a fairly recent country as far as UN membership. And, and uh, when I looked at that and looked at the cost, I was like, I'm if I'm going to go here, I'm going to really go to them all. Uh, at the time, it had very limited access, only flights from Darwin and Australia, Bali and Indonesia, um, you know, 
airlines that don't connect. If you if you've traveled a lot about Indonesia, uh, you're probably familiar with massive flight delays and changes. So any any elaborate trip in Indonesia needs to be incredibly flexible. So once I once I went on that, I felt like I've I'm going to start exploring the the entire world. So how did you do it as a college student? Because you know, graduating college for me, I, I, I didn't really have much money, right? And and you have you have your college debt, uh, you have low paying job most of the time. Uh, but how did you have the money to fund this um, 20 years ago? Uh, step by step. And it, the ambitions in the beginning were very small. And at the time, uh, China was, was a bit more flexible in some ways about the visa policy. So it wasn't uncommon for a young person to get jobs where they're there on multiple entry business visas rather than the more at the time much more onerous employment visas and companies were in the habit of sponsoring what's called visa runs and the typical visa run would be to go down to hong kong reset your visa reset your visit clock uh, but i negotiated with with a company that i got a job it wasn't a high paid job but i said for my ru visa runs if you're going to do this way i want to go some other places so Got a flight to Mongolia, got a flight to Iran, you know, started adding different countries, Kazakhstan and that. So that was one that uh, just being resourceful, making making the most out of a situation where I didn't have all that much cash, but it was a win-win for the company and for me to try some new things. Nice. Um, so in terms of your way of travel, like, are you the type of traveler who spends a couple of days in a new country or do you spend a few weeks? You know, I know in the, the, Facebook, uh, the Facebook group, that you know there's a lot of uh discussion on countries not counting if you only spend like a day or so or a day or two and uh, what what has been your style of travel uh as you've hit every country in the world a rule we try to have on the group is no arguments about the right way to travel but that's impossible to enforce and people that are passionate about a subject will be passionate about about their ways to do it and each person has a different answer sometimes a very self-serving answer you know the spend a night in every place. And I know people who have like found a guest house that on GPS coordinates is within the land boundary of the Vatican, even though it's outside the wall, or they've slept on the steps of St. Peter's Basilica, just to say they've spent a night in the Vatican. And then other people say, what's the point of sleeping in a place? It's dark. Your, you know, your eyes are closed. <laughs> Does it really make a difference? So, so for me, it, it's been a fluid thing where I've, I've, I've treated it as an, as my own guideline of do I feel like I visited in a, pl a place in a way that I don't have to go back? So I may very much want to go back, uh, but I don't. I, but I've seen a substantial amount, and and that 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 is fluid. So a place like Turkey, one of my favorites, and I've now been uh, ten or twelve times. We go pretty much every year. The first few times I visited were overnights in airport hotels. So yes, I was walking around Istanbul a bit. But just such a, a treasured country of history, culture, food, so many of the things that that I love that I didn't count it for my purposes until I took a uh, it was about an 11 day road trip from the far east of the country, Van, along the south through Kurdish areas, up through the Aegean coast and into Istanbul and other places, San Marino and Italy. I spent the day. It's interesting. You, know, you walk around. It was the middle of winter. Uh, you know, covered in snow, quite atmospheric, but I, I didn't feel like I needed to to spend the night there. And it's a micro state, and and that you know that by some people's standards wouldn't wouldn't count because I didn't spend the night. Mm -hmm. uh, well, earlier you spoke a little bit about uh, the sacrifices you had to make to see every country. 
um, relationships or, or maybe financial. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the sacrifices uh, specifically? Yeah, it's something that this level of travel, whether it's going to every country in the world or it's a continuous project and there's there's many different styles to take that on, it becomes a huge part of your life. And even when you're not traveling, you're typically thinking, you know, what, what are you doing at night before you go to bed? Are you thinking about what flight connections would work? Are you thinking about the next business opportunity? You know, all of these all of these have trade-offs. And so it is a significant amount of time, effort, resources that you, know, you could put extra money in the savings account. You know, I don't, I don't go clubbing. I don't go to Starbucks. I spend a, you know, what disposable money I can set aside after savings and retirement for this project in many ways. And so there's, there's uh, college friends and classmates that I've, I've lost touch with. There's new friends, entirely new friends that, that uh, you know, have come come from this hobby. But uh, even in college, I spent two semesters studying abroad and my roommates always felt betrayed. The best advice I got was a a, uh, study abroad counselor who said uh, to all of us, they said, when you come back, no one will care. They'll say, how was it? You say it was good. And then they'll start talking about the game that night or where they're going to go for drinks or or whatever. You're you're choosing a a different lifestyle. And as it moves into a professional situation, you know, remote work has become much more available and more flexible. Uh, but still, especially if you are working for an American-based company, of which I have for most of my career, I have worked for a Chinese company for a stretch, uh, but for most of my career, American companies, no one will ever thank you for not using your vacation. Uh, but people will also, you know, give you some sidelong glances if you consistently use your vacation. So your messaging and, and how available you are and how much you travel is is something to you know have a you know great care in terms of a career. I've had corporate jobs where uh, the senior executives knew about my travels. Uh, some saw me on a CNN interview once that they had no idea about when they were in the gym, and it, it was not a good scene, uh, even though it had no conflict with work in any way. Uh, but, um, you know, just the, especially amongst Americans, just a lack of understanding of why someone would devote so much time and effort to, to seeing the world when a lot of Americans don't have that interest. Yeah. So, uh, I, I take it that you did most of the, these travels solo, uh, or did you do some of it, uh, with maybe a significant other? I mean, for me, I I've had it, uh, it's very, di- I think it's very difficult to try and travel with somebody. Um, obviously most Americans don't have uh, the time off, right? The vacation policy, I've always said, is some of the worst in developed nations. Um, but like you said, like it, it has started to change a bit, uh, especially with remote work. But uh, have most of your travels been solo? I mean, is that one of the sacrifices you've made is just not having a, a relationship? Well, I'm I, uh, very lucky that uh, I... My my sweetheart from college sophomore years, uh, we are together, married many years, and she's tolerated a tremendous amount. There are trips she goes on, and in the past few years, especially the focus, is essentially every trip I've been on has been with her and to destinations that I know that she will enjoy and that I have great, great pleasure in showing her. Next week, we're going to Hokkaido in, in northern Japan that 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 I love and she's been she's a big in, into seafood for instance and Japanese skincare products so that's one that I know she'll love uh, but certainly most of my travels have been solo and and I was militantly a solo traveler you know when you're when you're solo the 
the big advantage is in in various settings on a train waiting for a flight around the world if you're alone people will approach you much more than even if you're a couple or with two or three because once you're with two or three people it creates a bit of a bubble where you're in that bubble and people don't necessarily come into it uh, so i was very much solo focused on meeting people wherever i traveled lately i've had a few opportunities to travel with people and i've come to appreciate the benefits of of traveling with others and friends it, it does generally mean less interaction with with locals or strangers that that you encounter but uh, seeing the plus side uh, it is we have a we have a branch of our facebook group called eps meetup group where people find partners they're interested in travel you know with others for various reasons and you know there's some great successes the the best advice i've seen is is people that they test something small with a potential travel partner if it's someone that they don't know that well or even they know very well so uh you know like uh, i know one traveler who's traveled tested a number of partners and always travels uh, first on a one night trip and this traveler's guide is how long did that person take from getting up in the morning to finishing with their bathroom routine and if they can't get out in out of the room in the morning and the time this person <laughs> finds acceptable won't travel with them again and so and it's an it's it's a good filtering method and it's a lot better than uh, than committing to two weeks and it was really it's really important to this person to be for that person's travel style to be out in the morning seeing things doing things and and recognized from prior experiences that a long you know lazy morning routine that others enjoy is something that just drives this person crazy so, so develop the simple test yeah no I, I always say that uh if i travel with anybody i always say you have to be willing to do your own thing you you have to uh, if you want to go do something if you want to go see a museum plan it go do it don't wait on me for everything because i've had people i've traveled with who can't do anything unless i'm with them and uh i like those times where i can just go down a street and come to a four-way you know, four-way stop and then try to decide which way to turn or, or go down some alleyway just to see what's behind the corner. Um, but uh, so you have had, you've gone through this journey with a significant other uh, this entire mm -hmm. time. She has been okay with you going on your trips solo without her? No, but, uh, and she reminds me that I wasn't the traveler of this, 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 this extent when we met. So it, uh, but it's it's part about are you committed to finding a way to make a relationship work? And we've had uh, you know various challenges building careers. We've for the first ten years of our relationship, it was both of us would have jobs. It would one would move to the city where the other was living, and then the job would send the next person right out the door. So for the first really ten years, we knew each other. It was very heavily long distance, even though we were trying so hard to be together. So it's. It, it's been a constant balance and I've tried to become better and you know, a relationship of any kind takes tremendous work, tremendous understanding you know, accepting that each person grows. And so as the relationship grows, people's interests can, can diverge, they can merge, they can do different ways. We just had friends over last night and talking about different hotels and, and I've known this this guy for a number of years, and he said, speaking of me and my wife, he said, "I when I think of you guys, I think of you as the most caring about what the hotel breakfast is like in the world. And that's something entirely new. My wife just loves having a nice start to the day, uh, a local breakfast with 
you know, no, no stress and delicious, delicious items to try. And before we started traveling together, I would often just wake up and be on the move and forget, forget about breakfast and then be, you know, hungry at lunch because I was so focused on sightseeing. And yet that's for us, it's become a joy and a wonderful way to spend time together. No, that's uh, you talking about that reminds me so much of my travels because I, a lot of times I, I skip breakfast because I don't want to sit there for an hour or 20 minutes waiting for the food. And then mm. the hour, I mean, I, I just want to get going because, you know, things close at five and, you know, there's so much you have to like fit in. So I've had many lunches where I, I'm starving by the time I finally eat. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade it because, you know, I got to maximize those daylight hours. Uh, what would you say is your style of travel? Um, are you a guy who hits up the museums? Are you going to the bars? Are you, are you, are you taking in, are you sitting at a park and just people watching? Like, what would you say is, uh, a typical day when you hit a new city, new country. Yeah, in some ways I've I've slowed down and, and it's more couples travel, but the, the the core the core travels have been very much seeing a lot, doing what I doing a lot of things. You mentioned walking around. I love just walking around cities for or destinations for hours and hours and hours and wherever that takes me. Uh, I also like road trips. So a lot of countries I'll rent cars and explore that way. Uh, much more flexible than relying on public transport in a lot of places and, and often quite a bit cheaper. I mean, in Europe, renting a car is often almost free other than the gas, but public transport can be quite quite limiting in some scenarios, although it's wonderful in others, seeing like the World War One and Two battlefields, you really need your own wheels to, to do that in Europe. And so uh, road trips quite a bit. Uh, often very fast travels. I have a blog that that's a bit on hiatus called Rapid Travel Chai because it was very much fast travels. I've always been been full time working. So what can I see in a day? What can I see in a weekend? How can I maximize this one day I have? And you know, UNESCO sites, museums, historic sites, and uh, I would typically look. And, and I know it's going to sound very old fashioned, but I love guidebooks. I love the the research and background and I love the systematic view, especially the older lonely planets, as well as the Brat guides that will really go through all the regions of a country, not just select what might be the most popular and get a sense to my mind of what are the very distinct things about the, this country or destination. And it may not be my natural first interest but if that's something that's that is distinct to that place, uh, you know, beaches are in so many places, and there, you know, a lot of them are replaceable or you know interchangeable. And but there's some that are just the ultimate beach destinations: Fernando de Noronha in Brazil, the Seychelles. Uh, so I'm going to go spend a lot of time seeing beaches, whereas in other places, a beach vacation is, is might be the last thing I think of. So I really try. You know, if it's dance, if it's different things, again, may not be my first interest, but really try to experience something that that makes that that place distinct. Hmm. You know, uh, one thing that I, I do, I don't know if you've, you've ever tried this before, but a lot of times I don't read um, anything about the, the des destination I'm going to because I don't, I don't want to have any kind of preconceived notions mm. about a landmark or a historical site because, you know, a lot of the blogs or the guidebooks still it, it, they almost tell you how you should feel, like, you know, mm. what's the wording that they use. So I will go and just kind of have like a clean slate, knowing that uh, this is an important uh, destination or a landmark that I'm going to. And then I, as I'm taking it all in, I'll, I won't read about it until afterwards. Um, 
but you know, it, there, there's pros and cons of doing it that way. In, in some ways, it, it's so refreshing because I'm just seeing it without uh, any kind of uh, preconceived notions. But sometimes I, I do. Um, after I read about it, I, I realize that I missed something that I should have looked at. Um, but I, I don't know if you've ever tried uh, doing travel that way at all. I, I love I love that approach and idea and and. I'm a hyper planner, so to an element, I haven't met that. But there, as I think about it, I, yeah, if if I'm if I know I'm visiting a specific site, I typically don't read about it. So there's an element of that where I do want to experience it and see it. I I don't do any travel planning on TikTok, Instagram, any of that. So I typically haven't seen pictures of a place, and so the first images I'll I'll see are are what I see with my eyes and not not holding up a phone or a selfie stick when I when I do so. So, sure. uh, you know, maybe, maybe that, that's a bit piece of it. You know, I feel like if, if I was doing trip planning on a visual medium, then I'd have such a, such a filtered and, and framed perspective right away that, uh, uh, that at least, at least that element I, I don't typically have. Yeah. So, uh, getting back to the way your style of travel, do you stay in hostels, couch surfing, hotels, Airbnbs? Um, are you, are you staying, are you eating Michelin star restaurants, street food. Uh, what would you say is your 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 mode of uh, of travel? If it's solo, it's typically budget and not necessarily hostels. I I do as I need to be able to work, and I I like a bit of privacy and, and relative comfort. I I'll stay at a hostel if if it has private rooms available or simple guest houses. Uh, for years, a lot of countries I've used Booking dot com. The the kind of places that are are family run. They're a little more expensive than than the typical hostel, but they they treat you a bit like like their niece or nephew that that didn't learn the language and grew up in another country, but you're their home visiting and you know, so the the old uh, grandpa and grandma that that run the place. I I enjoy a lot of those as accommodations and then separately I'm I'm very much into frequent flyer programs. So if it's a family or couples trip then it's it's the big points hotels the chains totally different and and the kind of benefits that uh, uh, that that comes with that and so I have these two very different styles depending on the trips I'm taking. Okay, well let's get into uh, mm -hmm. this uh, this question that we all get all the time mm -hmm. about how we can afford these travels uh, or even just travel hacks uh, with credit mm -hmm. card points. Uh, I was reading that you've funded most of your trips via, uh, via mm -hmm. credit card points. Yeah, um, very much. Uh, what, what are, what's something that someone should know if they are, are not a part of, uh, of of this system, this game? Uh, first, it, it helps to be based in the U.S. And uh, Canada is is uh, a pretty good market. Much of Europe and U.K. is is tougher. Uh, Australia is quite quite limited, but has its opportunities. But the 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 opportunities are out there to participate in programs like the U.S. programs, uh, if you want to learn and and put the work in. And where where many of the programs have focused their marketing efforts, whether they're airlines, hotels, credit card points, is like so much of online we see about simple 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 and i think the youngest travelers are used to apps with one or two buttons do this and a lot of that pushes you towards earning and using points in a way that redeems them for a gift card or a penny a point on an air ticket or uh, 1.5 cents per point on an air ticket and that can be very useful and very simple you just push some buttons uh, but the kind of travels we're talking about 
traveling around the Pacific Islands, traveling around West and Central Africa, those cash tickets on even very short basic flights can be incredibly expensive. And so to start learning about the frequent flyer programs, uh, you want to learn how to use their miles and and start to learn about their partners. So most of the airlines that have frequent flyer programs in the world have some kind of partners. There's major alliances that you may have heard of, like Star Alliance, One World, Sky Team. There's independent airlines that have partnerships. And so some of these can have tremendous value, but it's it's a real mental learning process and a bit of a hurdle for people to understand. So I have these Amex points. I can, instead of redeeming them on the Amex site, I can use the Amex site to transfer them to Air France. And I'm using Air France site and Air France miles to book a Kenya Airways flight because they're SkyTeam partners. That becomes second nature if you study this for a while, but it's totally mind-blowing and confusing at first because you're like, I want to fly Kenya Airways. I should have Kenya, Kenya Airways miles, but no U.S. credit card transfers to them. So then you're that's why I mentioned Air France, they're a partner. And so each of these has gotten in many ways more complicated. The more the programs try to simplify what are so-called dynamic programs instead of the traditional award charts where you knew in the U.S., say, a domestic one-way it was 12,500 miles in economy. Now there's all these different catches, all these different things. But if you have this interest, don't be discouraged. Start to learn. I wouldn't recommend Delta and United's programs right now, but I got to essentially every country in the world learning those two programs really well. And uh, having that focus, a lot of travelers in our group, uh, even outside the U.S., will buy Alaska Airlines miles because they partner with Fiji Airways in a very favorable way, and they use that to fund their trip around the Pacific. And people do hours and hours and hours of research, which flights are available, how to do it, how to use miles. Uh, but there's there's just tremendous value to spending that amount of time. But you, you do have to be prepared to invest that time, learn concepts. It's never free. You know, on TikTok, Instagram, people say it's free. There's always taxes, fees, different things. But as a very simple example, Alaska, I mentioned, it's one of the few airlines that still allows a free stopover of up to one year on a one-way award ticket. So you could fly, I know you're based in San Francisco, but the exact same miles price, you could fly from San Francisco to Australia on Fiji Airways, uh, or you could fly to Fiji, stop for one day, a week, two weeks, up to 364 days, essentially, and continue to Australia. And Alaska would charge you the exact same miles for that. There's slightly different taxes and fees because of departure taxes. Uh, but in that case, you're visiting Fiji and then within that trip, maybe from Fiji, you've got totally separate tickets uh, going to Kiribati, going to Tonga, getting back to Fiji and continuing to Australia. So it, it's a giant subject. Uh, it's a lot of learning. Uh, we have lots of groups and I, I run conferences and events talking about those. Uh, it is a big project, but it can be incredibly uh, rewarding and can be an incredible lifestyle thing as you as you learn how to do that. And you might even have points sitting around. You might have a job with a corporate card that has Amex points. You might have been putting all your your spend on a Chase Sapphire Reserve and uh, earning ultimate rewards points and not even realizing you have these tremendous opportunities because none of these companies go out of their way to help you to do anything other than redeem them for the lowest value redemptions. 
So what are the credit cards in your wallet that you use uh, that will always be in your wallet that you might recommend to other people? Yeah, I have, I don't know, 80 something credit cards. So it, uh, I can, I can say a use for all of them, but, uh, for, for, for starters, uh, two approaches, I, I find very compelling. So if you're based in the U S there's four main credit card points, ecosystems, Amex, Chase, City, and Capital One. If you go whole hog and get obsessed into all of this, uh, you'll eventually end up working on all of them. Uh, but picking one where you can earn points over a, a combination of their cards, such as the Chase Sapphire Reserve paired with the Chase Freedom, different categories earn different amounts of points uh, with those cards. And so uh, people often talk about getting a two or three card combo in one ecosystem that one card is perhaps three points per dollar on dining. Another card is 1.5 points per dollar on, on any any particular category. And when you learn this ecosystem, you have your your transfer partners, so airlines and hotels, and each is different, but each each has value. So that's that's one approach. And then another approach, and it, it's somewhat counterintuitive, is the airline cards are generally good for benefits like free check bags and that, not so great for for earning points. But the hotel cards can have tremendous value. And many of them, they charge an annual fee, but they'll come with a free night certificate and each has different restrictions, but it can be a great way to start and just dip your toe into these programs. So um, the Marriott cards with Chase or Amex, the IHG cards or Hilton or Hyatt cards with uh, Chase and the Hilton cards with Amex, uh, either with, with a modest annual spend or just for paying the renewal fee, just using the card once per year you get a free night to spend somewhere. And that can be a lot of fun, even if you're not extensively traveling and it can help you wade into it a little bit, get a sense, you know, how do I use those points? How do I use the cert? So, so I think starting out like with one or two of the, the hotel cards, like an Amex Hilton surpass that has good bonus on grocery and restaurant dining, which are two big spend categories for people. And uh, if you spend 15000 per year on the card, you get a free night certificate, good anywhere in the world. Uh, we just sent my mother-in-law for a week at Conrad Maldives on uh, Amex Hilton certs. And that's, uh, uh, you know, they say it's a trip of a lifetime, but we were there in September. I was just in Maldives for 12 nights at Radisson last month. Uh, we were at La Meridian Maldives. Suddenly, <laughs> Maldives, yeah. Maldives, Maldives. It's not our usual, but we had all these uh, hotel certificates. So might as well use them for something big. So you had all of your nights paid for through points. Yeah, yeah. We've spent uh, last year, what, 29 nights at La Meridian Maldives and then uh, 12 nights at Conrad Maldives and last month's uh, 12 nights at Radisson Resort Maldives. So it's been a bit of a theme. My wife said she's going to take a break. Sure. It's too sunny and hot, but that's a, that's a wild complaint to have. So, uh, the, yeah, it is. Um, uh, I have not done Maldives yet or Seychelles or Bora Bora. Those are the ones I'm saving for, you know, being coupled off. You know, I figure going solo is not going to be as enjoyable, but uh, looking forward to it for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Of the 80 cards that you have, mm -hmm. how many are, are you paying annual fees on uh, of the majority of them or, or what happens? Do you downgrade it once you, you, you claim your rewards points? What, what happens there? A lot of them are no annual fee ones. Uh, I do pay significant annual fees and, and a business owner and it's related to my business. So they're, they're, uh, you know, they, they are a valid business expense. So that, that helps some of it, but each, each annual fee card, you need to 
evaluate, are you getting that value for it? And uh, they can add up very, very fast. And there can be a lot of hurdles to using credits. You know, it may say $300 in dining credits per year, but it's only X dollars per month. Uh, and then you got to remember to use it each month or it's gone. So uh, for most people, I would say don't start out with a huge number of annual fee cards or, or perhaps only one. Like the Amex Platinum does have tremendous benefits, but a giant annual fee. And you know, the first year you get your sign-up bonus, which can help offset that. But then it is a real evaluation in year two. Am I... Uh, getting value out of that? Should I downgrade to a lower no annual fee card? Should I close it entirely? You know, do I am I eligible or not to get a new one? You know, how how much you want to get into it? But it is something that that can get away from people very fast. It's easy to rationalize. Oh, I get this uh, you know air, airport lounge access, but you know, did you only use it once last year? And would you have paid you know six hundred ninety five dollars to use that lounge once? You know, probably not. So it's. It's something to, to keep very much in mind, keep a good, keep good records and discipline. For most banks, you have uh, typically around 30 days from when the annual fee is billed to close the card and get that refunded. And people will have strategies such as, uh, you know, getting a card with calendar year benefits towards the end of December, get their benefits in December, get them in January, get them next January and, and get so three years of certain benefits and then close a card. You know, the banks don't like that kind of thing. So if you do it at scale, uh, to the degree it was popular five or 10 years ago, they have more systems in place to, to prevent people from just getting a new card and bonus every month. But there's still tremendous opportunities, especially for people starting out to uh, earn a lot of points very fast if they have access to, to US credit cards. Sure. Uh, what would you say you spend uh, each year on annual fees? <laughs> Again, it's it, it's a business thing, but I, I think last year was like seven or eight thousand. Okay, yeah, but I'm yeah. sure even a few nights in the Maldives is it offsets, right? I mean, even just that. But um, what would you recommend people like? For instance, I have, I would say, I probably have seven or eight credit cards. Mm -hmm. Should I go that route where I should open as many as possible? I mean, I pay I pay off my balance every month, so you know, there's no worry there. It, but, you know, I, I think there's always that 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 lingering fear of uh, having too many credit cards is a bad thing. Right. I mean, I, I think from generations in the past, it was having credit cards and closing them is 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 not good. Uh, granted, most of the cards that I haven't had reclosed, I've just downgraded them if, you know, if I don't want to pay the annual fee the next year. But um, would you say that that people who are getting into this, should they open as many cards as possible? Uh, you know, you you do not want to get in over your head. And you made a key point about anything with credit cards. If you don't pay your bill in full each month, not only will the fees and interest overwhelm you, but they most of the banks typically don't even award the points for those months. Uh, so you get nothing. And, you know, credit card debt is a major problem in the U.S. Uh, as well as around the world. You have to be in a financial position to... Uh, pay your bills in full each month when billed, uh, not, not revolve, which is uh, carrying balances over not, none of that. It, it's, you know, it's a privileged position that not that many people are in, in terms of financial stability, as well as inclination and discipline to manage it. So it's, it's very much not for everyone. 
Um, the rewards, of, you know, it's a very small niche of people that uh, typically have an interest in math, finance, science that that gravitate towards this. It's it's a huge, uh, you know, daily management task. How do you organize all this? And most people want nothing to do with this in their life, and that's that's how it should be. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of fair deal websites uh, such as Thrifty Traveler uh, that you can sign up for free or a modest paid thing. And they just email you deals. Then it says, you know, $400 from Chicago to Paris for June and July book this link. You know, that's, that's a perfectly valid, wonderful way to travel. And you just need to look at it at say an email and, um, you know, click and book. And so if you're going to get into the frequent flyer programs and points, it, it really needs to be something that you're interested in spending that amount of time. You have a very specific interest, such as you're determined to take every trip in business class or first class, or in my case, you're getting to destinations where economy tickets are prohibitive. If, if your goal is to get one or two trips a year in economy class across the Atlantic, then dabbling in the frequent flyer programs is not going to pay off. So you need to have that goal, that inclination, you know, willing to make it a hobby that, you know, when when there's a deal at midnight or you have a bill to pay, you're happy to log in first thing in the morning, do do all of that task. So it is it is very specific. Rewards can be huge upside. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like fun and it's it's fun for the family members that benefit from from all of these uh, these vacations and that, but uh, it is it is something that that those of us like me that are really into it spend a, a lot of hours looking at their monitors. Sure. So if if it weren't for these uh, reward points, would you have made it to 195 countries uh, regardless? Eventually, but I had always planned uh, that it would be uh, through through a retirement project. So continue working through through my 40s 50s and sometime in my 60s uh, uh, have you know the, the combination of, of time and resources to to uh, you know finish off in a sense which which ones were left were left undone so the the miles has been a tremendous boost of a few decades to uh, to make a lot of this possible sure so I have a question uh, uh, after mm -hmm. you know setting out to see every country, uh, I was reading that uh, your last country was Syria. Was mm -hmm. it, is that correct? But what was that like once you set foot in Syria? And, and what was that feeling of being like, I've completed it, I've done it? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it, it's a very mixed thing. And you know this, this kind of achievement, despite you know, people make it a big deal and social media gives platforms to that, it it's a very self-focused or, or almost selfish pursuit. And, you know, the nobody in the world really cares if you do it other than you. I mean, they say, oh, that's nice and that's great. And we have a community of travelers that we mutually appreciate it. But it it has to be something that is an achievement that, that you feel for yourself. And added to that was the situation in Syria. Uh, so the two that for a period of three years that I was not able to visit were uh, Yemen and Syria. In 2019, the situation, I was able to visit both. And I kept in touch over, over those intervening years of, you know, talking to fixers, which is a term for, for people that typically work with journalists, aid workers, scholars to get into places that, that have some complications. And 
you know, they would be kind of flip about things. They'd say, well, I've got four options to Syria and they're all one way. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but we don't have any round trip for you. So uh, I, I waited and you know, I, I could not be upset because the reason I couldn't go to those places was because of the tragedies happening in both of them. And the, I I respect that and know my incredible amount of privilege. And you could say it's a selfish hope to be able to visit, but the reality was the only circumstances I could visit were when those situations were getting somewhat improved for the people in those countries, that it would sustain a visit and allow tourists to come in and help economies that have been utterly destroyed. So that combination of factors was quite moving, but not as much focused on the accomplishment. I was in Damascus in uh, late August, early September, when for the first time in several years, families could be doing back to school shopping and drinking seasonal blueberry juice, uh, blackberry juice in the markets. And, and so feeling more than my specific accomplishment, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert in the politics of the country, but Fighting was more localized to certain regions at that point, and a number of regions in Syria were safe enough uh, in daily life that uh, locals, children, for instance, could be out and about uh, in a bit more of a normal situation, not not throughout the country, but uh, certainly in, in a number of the major cities. And so seeing that seeing that sense of, of transition, relief, still risk, you know, was was a huge part in it. It, it was uh, between different guides and uh, you know, people that I had met along the way, being invited to their social gatherings. Um, one restaurant I was just eating dinner at was they were having a giant party for like the last four years of high school graduates because none of them were able to have a graduation party. Mm-hmm. And the venue still had bullet holes on the walls and all of that, uh, an open air garden uh, with, with the walls severely damaged. So it felt like this giant achievement that that I was witnessing rather than than being the star of. And it was, you know, very melancholy, a lot of just tragic stories, scenes, but also this this feeling of hope. So it was an incredibly meaningful trip for for every reason other than it it happened to be this this one thing. Uh, There was a sense of relief. Certainly, it felt like, you know, as you as you have a quest like that, the quest can can take over how you think about things and there were trips and and things along the way that if I hadn't been pushing this goal you know I, I would have done different opportunities different things so it did it did feel freeing like any quest to have that complete start to wonder what's next and and also you know take that moment to say yeah that's something I wanted to do and I and I was able to do it hey I, I don't know if you ever uh, watched Princess Bride but um Inigo Montoya, you know, he's been in this revenge business for so long. And then after he finally kills the, the man who killed his father, uh, you know, he, he ponders what he's going to do next. And uh, of course, you know, he uh, possibly is the next Dread Prior of Roberts. But um, I'm curious, what is somebody who's seen every country in the world? What do they do after that? I mean, how is your travel now different than it was before you saw each country for the first time? Yeah, some people try to just reclaim it, and they go to everyone again. And some are on their third time around, and it 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 seems a bit a bit lonely, and uh, you know, trying to replicate that that moment for me. I mean, it, uh, the pandemic started very soon after, 
And, you know, that shifted everyone's travels in, in many ways. So I had 2019 started a list of regions, longer trips, uh, places that I had a particular interest that, that hadn't fit in the timing of everything. And so that was a big focus that, that I'm working on. And then, as I, I mentioned earlier, travel with my wife or family, or in some cases, friends, visiting some places and, and showing them a bit through my perspective. And that has, has become a big part. And so I've been very focused on what it is to, to share what I've experienced, to facilitate for others. I love in the Facebook group, you know, every time somebody says, let's make the group more advanced, they say, I'd much rather have the person, you know, everybody started with one country, they've got that one. So the person who uh, is is working on number two, and is excited and interested in a way to facilitate that uh, a couple months ago, we had one person you know, in, in online groups often called a lurker that you know people are active reading, but they're not sure about posting and then out of the blue, this guy posts an Egyptian and, uh, you know, got his, uh, I'm sorry, Iraq uh, from Iraq and got his, you know, first visa, his first country to go visit Egypt and was just overthrilled with excitement and sharing what he learned and how he got the visa. And a lot of what we talk about is people that have passport restrictions, more challenging countries that, that have a lot more hurdles. So you're traveling on an Indian passport, or you're traveling on an Afghanistan passport, all of these things can can add you know, tremendous amounts of difficulty. So seeing that and being part of facilitating what what people are able to do that's new, different, exciting. I'm amazed every day when when I hear about these stories and you know on just purely personal travels. Yeah. Lots of um mm-hmm. you know longer stays. Uh last year and, and the year before we started spending chunks of time in Singapore because that was one that had opened a little bit earlier in Asia and a place because of my quest I hadn't visited for 15 years before that. And now in the past year and a half or so, we spent about uh, two months there and it's, it's a booming place. There's, there's so much economic interest and opportunity, wonderful events to drop in and meet people. It's, it's not the traditional expat place in the sense of costs are very high and uh, work permit restrictions because of the, the limited size, uh, it's not quite like my early expat days after college when, when people would pop in uh, throughout markets around Asia, but uh, uh, you know, really exciting and interesting to learn places a bit more in depth, whereas in the past was visiting places much more quickly. Well, that leads me into uh, mm-hmm. a question I'm sure you get a lot, which is what have been your favorite countries in the world? Yeah, as long as I don't have to answer the reverse, because I've learned never to answer the least favorite because somebody's always from there and every every country has a defender and, and a lot's based on what your experience at the moment. But uh, I mentioned I studied Chinese in high school and, and lived there and uh, you know, any place where you can learn a language, you know, the apps are wonderful. Uh, you know, there's so many ways now to communicate, but if you can learn a language and have that validation of speaking with people in their language and growing with it, it it's so much more enriching that, uh, and as well, many of my earliest international travel memories are, are around China, visiting every province so that uh, as challenging as it is for many travelers, including myself, including Chinese, uh, it's it's still by far the the favorite for, for that ability. And then some of the others, uh, I've, I've coming from a very big country, the U.S., living for a chunk of my life in 
and you have giant country as well, China, some very small places. I've, I've been fascinated by the communities, places like the Faroe Islands, uh, you know, just gorgeous scenery and, and very small communities. And then uh, you know, some others that pop to mind. Sri Lanka is one that I love. It's so many highlights, you know, elements that, that uh, like some of the attractions of India, except it's a one-hour drive instead of a nine-hour drive in, in many ways. Uh, Tunisia is one of my great favorites, a uh, big Star Wars fan. You mentioned Princess Bride. I'm, I'm the right generation for all of that. So uh, driving around the deserts in Tunisia and seeing the in, in New Hope sites, uh, just sitting out in the desert decaying are incredible. Uh, the the ancient Roman sites, big, very much interested in ancient history sites. So throughout North Africa, I've, I've just loved it. And, you know, there's, there's so many, so many wonderful places seeing the mountain gorillas. Uh, if you can ever see those, I mean, you know, wildlife encounters are, are, are spectacular. You know, it's a big, big, wonderful world. And, and, uh, you know, so much, so much out there to, to see and learn and enjoy. Okay, so while you you won't talk about your least favorite countries, what about like some harrowing situations you've been in? Um, what have been some of the more uh, specific, difficult uh, situations you've been placed in while traveling? Uh, for the most part, so I've got uh, when, when I do lectures and talks about people concerned about travel, one is they talk about the language. You can always overcome the language barriers, uh, but I have a, a rule called three Ds: don't be drunk, drugged, or debauched. And uh, you mentioned, do I go out to nightclubs and that, especially it's, it's not my nature anyway, but especially not alone or in a country where I don't know, is it 911? Is it 119? Is it, you know, the legal system, all of that, not, not a partier. And, uh, so for the most part, I've been able to avoid uh, you know, a lot of the situations that, that uh, you know, could be, could be quite quite harmful. I've I've been mugged once in in Cameroon, uh, but it was a kid so small that I was able to grab him and realized I was twice his size. And uh, immediately one of the elders intervened and gave me back. I was so stupid. I had my phone out where I shouldn't and mm -hmm. you know, grabbed it. So I've had things like that. Um, you know, there's there's places where people have a lot of guns, including the U.S. That <laughs> it gets very nerve wracking to be around guns, uh, where people are very drunk. Uh, Abhazia, I was there. It's a semi, it's a border border area between uh, you know what is territorially supposed to be Georgia and next door in Russia, and uh, you know, quite a quite a disputed zone. And um, got mugged there in the middle of the night just because there was transport delays. And suddenly, like, why am I arriving? It was before the Olympics in Sochi, which is nearby, and. They had shut the border, and I still went there like at midnight, getting to a deserted town. Uh, but the guy was so drunk, he just bear hugged me, and I was able to push him off. <laughs> and, yeah. and so these kind of things, you know, these these things do happen in, in the occasion. For the most part, they're they're extremely rare if you take some reasonable precautions. Uh, I've driven cars off roads in some places that uh, <laughs> have been a little hairy. So driving. Uh, Driving is is probably the the riskiest in places. You know, I think thinking about safety, it's it's a bit like when people start doing drugs in countries because it seems cheap and exotic, and don't pay attention to the part on the immigration form that says death to drug traffickers. Uh, it's easy overseas to drive too fast or to party too hard and think it's like monopoly money or monopoly life. Uh, so it's it's an important one to 
to fight that inclination and and be cautious. It doesn't mean not doing interesting things, but it does mean don't don't uh, you know you know totally lose your judgment just because it seems different and and it feels a bit like the the rules don't apply. Um, some other guidelines are. You know, if are the women and children out and about or are the elderly people out and about? And if you assess a situation, you mentioned walking around towns, you know, the, the street you walk down at night where it's just guys in leather in black jeans and leather jackets, probably not the street you want to be walking alone on. You know, if if it's a market and the women and children are out shopping in most countries, that's an indication that they feel safe to do that. You know, so, so having that awareness of a situation. And, you know, in the end, I've trusted so many people in so many ways over the years. And the cases where people do something bad are, are actually incredibly small. You know, many taxis or cars I've I've chartered just by flagging somebody down. You know, they've stopped at a mountain monastery somewhere. And am I going to carry my backpack around all day or am I going to leave it in the car and hope the guy doesn't drive off? And, you know, it's very rare that they would drive off. You know, maybe it'll happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, all these things, uh, having a concern about safety or danger, but not not becoming cynical about human nature, which in most cases is wonderful. Yeah, um, thankfully for me, I've yet to be mugged. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, a lot of times people are always, I think their first question is always, isn't that country dangerous? Um, you know, for instance, uh, Colombia. I actually go to Colombia a lot because I, I enjoy the country. and you always have, I always have somebody who asks me, isn't it dangerous? Isn't it dangerous? And I always tell them that uh, I don't think any place is as dangerous as the United States. Um, I've been mugged, you know, here. I, I've been punched here. I've had my bike stolen here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, granted, there's a larger sample size uh, here. But uh, I always tell people, I, I when I'm in other countries, I, I've had situations where uh, people have said, this is a bad area, you need to leave, or, you know, they, they guide me out. I've had, I've had people give me a ride when I couldn't get a taxi. They're like, mm. car, this is not a good area. Let me drive you to another, another, uh, drive you to your hotel. And uh, so, you, like you said, there's just so much kindness out there. Uh, have you ever had any situations where you feared for your life or you were genuinely scared? Mostly in cars, you know, when, when it's like a near, near accident or something or, you know driving at night and how the heck did that camel get there or right. those things. So, uh, you know, those, those type of situations, you know, have I been fortunate, you know, careful when, about, about other types of situations? Uh, you know, that's, that's hard to say. I haven't had exactly what, what you're referring to. Uh, but, um, you know, those, those do happen and, and there are terrible things that, that happen in the world. And I, your perspective is a great one. And I would add, you know, never ask somebody who emigrated from a country, is their country safe? Because they left for a reason and they're out of touch inevitably and never ask their neighbors. So if you ask, uh, you know, the neighboring country people, what do they think about their neighbors? It doesn't matter where in the world you are. They've got nothing good to say about it. And it's like when you're renting a car, like you can't take it there because they'll just, you know, rip the wheels off the moment you park it and it'll leave it on cinder blocks. Then you go to the next, that country. And then they say the same thing about their neighbors. So it's, it is tough to, to get a sense of, um, of uh, local information in advance. You know, you can, you know, I, I actually, heard a good tip recently of changing your Google location to be that country for searches and then look at the news. Cause then you'll get a, 
and actual not not what the world is saying about that place, but you'll get their local publications and get a sense of of what the uh, what the environment is like. And you know, nothing beats uh, getting into the country. And you know, is it traveling with companions? Is it meeting locals? You know, taking those precautions and, and learning how you assess a situation and and how you can take care of your safety. You know, absolutely, it's a it's a key learning process for travelers. Yeah, you know, being uh, a former journalist, one thing I also tell people when they ask me about the dangers of other countries, I say that, you know, the U.S. is 330 million people. Uh, if there's going to be any news from another country, it's always going to be something that has to do with a bombing or a shooting, or it has to be mm -hmm. very destructive to even mm -hmm. make it onto our news because we have so much stuff going on here. Um, so I, I tell people, you know, so take that with a grain of salt because, if people just looked at the U.S. news, they would think that there's a shooting in around every neighborhood, which, you know, there are a lot of shootings. But, you know, it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, if they only looked at it uh, or if they only looked at the murders in Chicago, right? I mean, there's uh, two, I think, a couple every day. Uh, they would think maybe I should never visit Chicago because of, you know, all the, all the murders that are going on there. But you know, what I found is that a lot of the crime happens in specific regions uh, mm -hmm. that you just avoid. And, you know... Uh, I mean, one thing I read about today was, um, you know, uh, Title 42 uh, about to end and, uh, you know, the rush of uh, Im immigrants, you know, coming to the, the border with Mexico and the U.S. And they painted the picture of this Honduran immigrant uh, about how there's so much crime there and there's, you know, there's so much gang warfare that he had to leave his country. And I actually thought it was a, a little bit of irresponsible journalism. Because it, you know, it's just painting the picture of this one person who's coming here. And you mentioned this earlier. You know, don't ever ask somebody about how safe mm -hmm. their country is if they they immigrated, you know, here. And uh, because when I was in Honduras, and you've been there as well, mm -hmm. I didn't find myself in danger. I thought it was great. I walked around town. You know, I walked around. Uh, I think it was La, La Ceiba, and then also, uh, you know, the capital as well. But you know, it's I, I you know, it's all very relative. Um, I'm thinking of a public bus ride I had in Honduras where a bunch of farmers get on with these giant machetes. And I was like, oh, you know, for a moment, I'm like, I know those are some pretty big knives. But uh, they yeah. were just taking it one stop down the road to the next field and smiled and waved to everybody. <laughs> but yeah, you get this impression. And if, uh, you know, it's it's not to minimize the real tragedies for for people uh, that they've experienced and caused them to to move or to potentially leave their their country, but that doesn't mean every situation is that. And uh, you know, travelers throughout the world in, in many cultures, I'd say essentially every culture except maybe the most urbanized or U.S. to a degree have a tremendous appreciation of guests and visitors. And you know, as much as people may not like their country or their politics, everybody wants to be able to love their country. You know, it takes pride in where they're from, even if they recognize that you know, no place is perfect, including theirs. And especially places that are not as visited or not as mainstream in, in world media news, uh, people are generally so inclined to go out of their way to be helpful, to be welcoming to foreigners. You know, there's there are places, Papua New Guinea, I mean, famously, there is a lot of violence in that country. And if you go to a restaurant in Port Moresby, you can be sure that the restaurant will make sure you have a safe ride home and will not typically let you walk home. They will 
make sure to be in touch with your hotel call a taxi that they know and trust and get you back and that's that's just a given of what they do they know that they do have street crime issues and when they see a, a foreigner they will go to that level and you know protection and when locals go to that effort there's a reason for it and you know trusting them and not being dismissive of their concerns you know people don't don't say you really should take a taxi you know just just to be making some commission or something you know there there are there are these these places and situations where the locals you know not only know best but you should pay attention and and not be not be cavalier sure uh so on that note is there um a country that you've been to that is not on people's radars as a tourist destination that you think should be it's actually much of the world is not not on anybody's radar you know so many uh, uh i don't know if they're they're my favorite go-to destinations but but to give people a sense of if you start looking at how unusual from perhaps expectations the world can be the first three countries I went to in South America, I did not hear a word of Spanish. So, which you're probably familiar, what what countries would, and not Portuguese either, which which countries would those be? Guyana, French Guyana, and Suriname. Yeah, and I mean, truly growing up, I would look at the maps, but I would never pay that much attention. And they just happened to be the ones where the flights worked and I started visiting. And, you know, they're not mainstream. They They may not... They're not cheap to visit, and they're um, you know not necessarily overflowing with traditional tourist sites. But you know, just think about that: the the first three countries, and I didn't hear Spanish or English the whole time. And uh, yeah. uh, you know, so it, looking around the world and and seeing you know, there's 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 so much there's so much that's quirky and and individual. I, I think for Americans too. Um, Europeans know a lot about their islands in the Atlantic, in the Mediterranean, up north, uh, but um, Americans know much less so. I, I mentioned the Faroes. I mean, Madeira is another. It's it's a wonderful encapsulation of so much of Portugal and this beautiful Atlantic island. And so, um, island, the Oland Archipelago between Sweden and Finland. Uh, you know, just every little tiny island has like one fisherman's hut, and they. Uh, you can take these cruises through it. Uh, they have their own parliament. These fascinating, quirky places around the world. So, so get out a map. You know, pull up some of the the lists, like the Traveler Century Club list, and you know, look at a place. And does it does it pop out as something that's uh, that's particularly interesting, or like you know, just how does this place exist in the world? And yet, it's you know, it's everyday life for the people there. So go check it out. Okay, so final question. Uh, I know you're based mm -hmm. in Seattle now. Mm -hmm. uh, is there some place that you'd like to retire to um, in the future? And why Seattle right now? We were living in New York. My wife studied there and worked there. And uh, uh, my father's from New York originally, so I had quite a bit of experience there. But as a Midwest boy, I, I never wanted to... I, the part of New York I loved was all of the international airlines and JFK Terminal 4. And my rule was, especially we moved over to Jersey City for a few years, and my, my rule is I'd only cross the river on the weekends if it was to get a flight because uh, all the, the train, the, the path train repairs and all that. So when she said she wants to give the West Coast a try, I said, I'll be on the flight this afternoon. And uh, I had almost no experience of the West Coast. 
Uh, but you know, she drove it and, you know, she's one that whatever the weather is, she's chilly. I'm, I'm overheating, but somehow Seattle is, is a mix of it. It's got a great expanding airport and international flights. Uh, it's two and two hour, 15 minute door to door to some of our favorite restaurants in Vancouver. Uh, so it's got, you know, wonderful economic opportunities. It's, it's a, a real joy. And of the, the people in the U S who move, specifically to states with no no income tax which doesn't always seem worth the move it's by far my favorite and i, I feel like even though the costs are high people should uh, should give it uh, should give it some love compared to, to some of the alternatives but that's uh mm -hmm. you know long term we we both really really enjoy seattle and and i have thought about this question a little bit of you know would we we probably wouldn't retire to one place if if we had the options i mentioned we go to turkey every year we we love turkey uh love the food love the culture it's it's quite uh flexible in terms of um different options as far as permanent residency or even people interested in in citizenship through real estate or, or other things so that's that's one that that attracts me uh throughout asia um you know, there's a lot that would be ideal but not a lot that uh are that accessible uh, in terms of residence and permits. So, so potentially you know, longer stays, but not actually having a base uh, in China, in Japan, in, in uh, South Korea, in Singapore, these that Asia will always be a part of our life. Um, Australia is another, so not necessarily the, the cheapest, but uh, yeah, I mean, we would potentially have like two or three places around the year that we would, we would go to and spend time and um, keeping and keeping in mind, we, we always want to be where we have friends and, you know, over the past, uh, what, five, six years in Seattle, we've, we've developed tremendous friends. Some people I had known online through travel communities that now have become in-person friends and we'd want to maintain that. We wouldn't, we wouldn't want to just disappear somewhere and you know, totally break ties or, or totally disappear on a beach. Yeah. And, you know, actually the other way I've answered it at times is it would be incredibly, incredibly expensive, but I, there's got to be some apartment on the top of Tokyo station that, uh, I could live in. And, you know, there's like within, within the station without even crossing the street, you've probably got like 2000 of the world's best restaurants that, that you can eat without even setting foot outside. And it's always bustling, always busy. The, um, the places where it seems like, senior citizens are the happiest and healthiest and active are places like Japan, like Hong Kong, Hong Kong, the, the cha tenting yeah. the cafes. They have, they have the old timer sets like mid morning and mid afternoon when the business uh, and the employee type rush is not done. And there are all these groups of old timers and they're always talking and always chatting and always engaged and have their racing uh, papers and their snack sets. So anywhere where, People are not isolated, not alone. It's a tragedy in the U.S. how we have so many people who, when they retire, they become incredibly isolated, you know, an extension of suburban life, even worse. So it would definitely be urban. And, you know, some of these places, like like I mentioned, Turkey, Seattle, uh, we always want to be in a city, always want to be around people interacting. That's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned to you um, in a previous discussion that uh, I just came back from Japan uh, a couple of months ago and going to, you know, Kyoto and Osaka and some of these in, in Kobe and 
different regions outside of Tokyo, it's just such an adventure every day, just going out for food. And, mm. uh, you know, just even waiting in, in a, a small line outside of a shop and just enjoying the, the culinary experience in Japan is, is amazing. Um, so I, I definitely uh, agree with you on that, that possibility of a, a retirement place. Um, so I want to thank you once again, Stefan, for joining. Um, we can find your Facebook group, Every Passport Stamp. Um, anywhere else that we can find you online? Yeah, my uh, my various social media handles and, and blog, Rapid Travel Chai, so um, R-A-P-I-D, Travel, C-H-A-I. And uh, getting, I've been on a bit of a hiatus, but getting back to some of those and getting re-engaged with the group, more more events and, and get-togethers and meetups coming and uh, want to do a lot more of you know, encouraging. I mean, you're close to your 100th country. We've got people who are, uh, you know, working on 10, as I said, working on two and you know, very much excited to, to follow what you're doing and, and how you get the word out as, as well as so much of the community. It's uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people like yourself, like so many travelers in our group that that have incredible information. That you know, even if somebody's not specifically trying to go to every country, there there is that these people with the expertise and the travel that you're interested in, and looking forward a lot more of of what you're going to do of connecting and and inspiring people. Well, thank you very much. I find inspiration in your group all the time. I mean, I I spoke to Tony Giles. Uh, I interviewed him the other day and he's the blind traveler who's been mm -hmm. in 30 countries and, you know, just the way that he sees countries or, or you know, the way that he, he experiences countries is just so unique. I mean, the, the places that I, I mean, I think Machu Picchu is incredible for him. Mm -hmm. It's Antarctica, you know, because he could feel the snow, he could hear the mm. penguins and uh, he really enjoyed New Zealand because of the niceness of the people. So mm -hmm. for it was just fascinating talking to him, but there's so many people in that, that group uh, who are all doing this. And, you know, even for me, I don't know if I'm going to get to every country. Um, in some ways it's uh, there's sometimes you, you kind of hit like a wall and uh, you know, doing this solo, it's uh, kind of, you know, at some points you kind of feel lonely, you know, and you, yeah. you, you need a break and you're fortunate because you you're married, you, you you're married with your college sweetheart. But I think for a lot of people, they, they either have to, continue this journey. And, and my theory is that a lot of people are doing this solo. Um, mm -hmm. And, but, uh, you know, when I see people post in the group that they've traveled to every country, it seems like they're, they're posting that picture by themselves. And, you know, what cost was it, you know, like, do they have to sacrifice relationship or kids or anything like that? And so I don't know if I'm going to hit all of them, but I, I, I hope to 100 for sure. I'll be excited once I pass 100, and I think anything on top of that will just be like, you know, a cherry on top. You know? I once did an interview uh, written for a, a newsletter, and they asked for a bunch of pictures, and I didn't send any pictures that had me in it, and they got scolded, and they said, every picture has to be of you with something, and I said, I don't have many of those, and I have ones of people I met or things I did, and it was a big debate, but yeah, as you said if it becomes just that solo achievement, then it's also like the, uh, you know, like the high school football captain 20 years later sitting at the bar, like, I, you know, I threw that touchdown. <laughs> you never, you never want to be that. But uh, yeah, there's, there's probably 30 or 40 countries that for, you know, each person, there's that set that, you know, are, are expensive, difficult, and not, not quite their interest. So it, it, it doesn't need to be forced. You know, what, you know, it should be something enjoyable. It's it's fine to repeat. You know, you've got clearly a a, a wonderful perspective out there, and you know, I certainly encourage you to 
take a break, take a pause. Don't, don't let it become a burden because it, it is something that you know, really matters for you much more than, than for anybody else. And, uh, you know, figuring out how you want to do that, how you want to engage with the world should, should be fulfilling to you above everything else. Yeah, Stefan, uh, good words of advice. I appreciate it. Once again, I appreciate the time as well. So um, thanks. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. And I can't wait to see your travels. Thank you. All right. All right. See you. Remember, you can find more information about today's interview subject at pickmyadventure.com and discover more interviews. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next time on Pick My Adventure. I'm your host, Kevin Liu. You can find out more about me on Instagram at Pick My Adventure Traveler, where I let you pick my destinations and travel activities through polls. Mm -hmm.